few of us like going into major events unprepared. It's the stuff of nightmares uh, for some of us. Uh, I think in terms of Harry Truman, President Harry Truman. Of course, those of you who know anything of the history of the 20th century know that Harry Truman's partnership with Winston Churchill in the closing days of World War II and the opening stages of the Cold War was significant and critical for the unfolding of events as the 20th, mid-20th century went along. But in the earliest days of Truman's administration, one had to wonder if that was actually, if anything close to that was actually going to come to fruition. If you don't know about this, it's, it's worth knowing that when Truman was vice president, and I don't know all the backstory here, but when Truman was vice president, he was for all practical purposes locked out of President Roosevelt's inner circle. So when Roosevelt died, Truman had precious little to no foreign policy experience whatsoever. And he was completely, in many respects, ill-prepared for the responsibilities that now had been thrust upon him. And he knew this. It wasn't just his critics. Truman himself knew this, and in fact is quoted uh, by, by one particular friend of his saying, I'm not big enough for this job. I don't like being ill-prepared for significant events. That's a common desire. We, we all know what that's like. It's, it's why we understandably, rightfully study for the test. We prepare for, for meetings that either we're participating in or perhaps even leading. It's why we, we train for, for athletic competition and certain events and, and, and such. It's, it's, it's an understandable and, co and commendable impulse to, to want to be prepared for some major thing that, that's in front of you. And what Jesus is saying in this text that's in front of us today is that that right, good, understandable, and commendable impulse to be prepared needs to be focused and turned towards the day of his return of being prepared, of being ready. If you have your Bible with you, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 51. It is on the screen, but if you want to look at it there in front of you, this is the first of the four Gospels, the first book of the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are in Matthew 24, uh, whereas last week it was a very short text. Uh, just we were looking at verses 32 to 30, excuse me, we were looking at 29 to 31. This week we're looking at 32 to 51. So we're going on to the end of the chapter. Uh, what we looked at last week sets us up for what we're looking at here this week. Matthew tw 24, verses 32 to 51. Hear now the word of God. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your taking so seriously the questions of your disciples that day. When will these things be? And what will the signs be of your coming? You clearly took their questions very seriously because this is a very long answer that you are giving to them and, and really to us uh, as we are thinking more and more about these matters, about how uh, the state of this world that seems like it is all, well, eternal almost because it's all we know, it's all we've ever known, and you're making very clear, no, no, it had a beginning, and it will have an end. A remaking, a rebeginning. We ask that you would help us to understand more of that as significance for us, our everyday, and the whole course of our lives. We ask that you would, even as we prayed last week, we ask that you would help us to more um, carefully and consistently grapple with how does the sure coming of the Son of Man have an impact upon our lives Monday morning. We ask that you would help us to see that, wrestle with that, live out of that, look forward towards that in the best possible sense. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Jesus has been clear on his return. Make no mistake, Jesus has been clear on his return. Now, this is, as I've been saying over the last several weeks, this is what uh, New Testament scholars refer to as the Olivet Discourse, meaning it is the, uh, the teaching, the, the significant and lengthy teaching that he gives there on the Mount of Olives during what we refer to as Holy Week, that is that span of days between Palm Sunday and Easter. The whole thing is set in motion in the beginning of chapter, what's recorded for us in chapter 24, when Jesus makes this prediction as to the judgment and the fall that is, is coming with just a generation uh, to the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself. Well, that understandably sets in motion some concern and questions of Jesus' disciples, and they respond in kind. Jesus then responds to them with an answer, and that answer forms what we have recorded for us in Matthew's gospel, the whole of chapter 24 and the whole of chapter 25. It's a long answer. Uh, to this question, and he's taking this very, very seriously. 
Jesus, so it's a long answer, Jesus is being very clear. He's being very clear on his return. Now, that said, what he says, for all of its clarity, that answer has a way of stretching our assumptions and stretching and destroying our, in some ways, even our understanding, our basic understanding of, of these matters. Um, it raises, in fact, some other questions in our minds, and it's at this point we have to grapple with something else, and that is, in many respects, what Jesus is saying about his return, the day of his return, is on a need-to-know basis. And no few of you in this room are acutely aware of what that terminology means, uh, a, a need-to-know basis, meaning that there is a restriction of, on sensitive data a restriction on sensitive data, which is to say that, it, you know, it doesn't matter what your security clearance may or may not be. You may have the privileges of access to a whole range of information in this area, in this area, in this area, but unless you truly have a need to know and your ability to carry out your official duties is completely hinging on your knowledge of this information and having access to this data, forget it. You won't. You won't because it's all on a need-to-know basis. What is a certain sense in which we can say what Jesus reveals and does not to us, the whole, the whole corpus of what he's saying here about the, his return is on a need-to-know basis. Here, here's an example. So D-Day, the Allied invasion of Europe in June of 1944. There were thousands of military personnel involved in the planning of that invasion. That said, there were a very, is a small number, a severe, to say select few would be the understatement, quite an understatement, a select few who had a, a sense of the overall scope of what was going to happen. They were simply told what they needed to know in order to carry out their particular specific function within the whole. Need to know, need to know. Jesus is giving us what we need to know. He's been clear on his return, giving us enough, giving us enough. He's been clear on his return, and the whole point of it is he wants us to be ready. He's been clear on his return, the reality of his return, because he wants us to be ready. He wants us to be prepared. And as you delve into this and you look at chapters 24 and 25, Three things become very clear in terms of the priorities, the, the emphasis of what he wants to know, how it is that we can be ready, what it is that we've got to grapple with. And the first is this. It's there in your outline, the certainty of these events. It begins with that, the certainty of these events. The second thing is that, now that said, the uncertainty of the timing. And then thirdly, the absolute necessity of preparations. Okay, so you have the certainty of the events, it's going to happen, the uncertainty of the timetable, the schedule, and then the absolute necessity, with all that in mind, of being prepared. Those three things, we're going to look at that together. Let's do that now. So the first point being the certainty of, this, of these events. So here's the question. Is this really going to happen? Is this really going to happen? Well, Yes, that's what Jesus is making very clear to us. Verses 32 and 35, we read it again. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, 
this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There is a certainty that Jesus is speaking to regarding the things that are to come, and you can't miss that in the way that he says what he does. He's speaking here of, of events, the, sure, the certainty, the surety of events that are uh, near future. This generation meaning the people that were alive in that time, this generation will see these things happen, these things being the destruction, the fall of the city of Jerusalem and the collapse of the temple, and all of those things are going to lead up to it. Those people are going to see these things, be sure of it, and they did. And, and, and there will be signs, there will be a precursors of those things for those people in those years leading up to 70 A.D. when the Romans did, in fact, come and do those horrible things, just as surely as in the ancient world and in any agrarian society, that's why the, where the fig tree thing comes into play here, the fig tree and the blossoming of the fig tree acts as something of a barometer of the coming of summer. Just as surely as you will see those things happening, you can count on these things happening near future near future. But now we've been talking about this over the last few weeks. Chapters 24, 20, well, we haven't gotten to 25 yet, but we will eventually, hopefully. Um, and and that, that being this, that the, those near future events, real, historical, horrific, horrendous as they were, ultimately were meant to be a precursor, a preview for events distant future that were sure, equally surely and certainly to come, and that being not just a temporal judgment, just Jerusalem, but the whole of the world with the return of the Son of Man. There's a certainty, what Jesus is saying, there's a certainty to the near future events, and it's tied to the distant future events, and don't think that one is less or more certain or sure than the other. So the certainty of the things to come, but also equally so a certainty to Jesus' words. I don't know if you picked up on that, but if you maybe got lost in what he was, had said in the beginning of that, of, of that stretch there, verses 30 through 35. But when you get towards the end, oh my goodness, if you really hear what he's saying and get a sense of the freight and the implications of the way he says what he says, the authority of Jesus' words... Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Now, if I said that, you people should put me in a loony bin. Right? But Jesus says this of himself. He speaks of the cosmos. The cosmos will disappear, dissipate like a mist. And how can he say that? Because he's the creator of the cosmos. And so what he says is eternal, even though the cosmos is not. His words are unique. No one has ever spoken like this, not sanely, not rationally. No one has ever spoken like this. The prophets of old would say, thus says the Lord, because they're quoting, right? They're quoting, and because they can, they, they, my authority is based on who I'm quoting. Not Jesus. Jesus never uses those phrasing, that phrasing. He never uses those words. He never says, thus says the Lord. He just says it. He just says what he does and never apologizes. 
and then means every syllable. These are eternal and unique. I don't even know if that's the, that, that word doesn't say enough, but unique words. So we have the certainty of these events and the certainty of Jesus' words at the same time, assured and, and certain. So speaking of the cosmos, let's, let's talk about the status of planets for a moment. Some of you know that a few years ago, poor old Pluto was downgraded. Um, what's up with Pluto? How does that happen? How does such a thing happen? Well, to qualify as a, as a planet, you have to meet you. It, it has to meet, good luck with you meeting this, uh, Heavenly has to meet certain criteria, and there are three. Here's the quote. First, it has to orbit the sun. Secondly, it has to be large enough to assume a round shape. And thirdly, it has to clear the neighborhood around its orb. Well, it's a third of those was a strike. At all three, you know, it's not two or three, it's, it's all three. Um, and that's the one that struck out Pluto. But who says? I mean, so that's the criteria. But who says? Who gets to make that up? Well, I'll tell you who gets to make that up. The IAU. Who do you know? That is the International Astronomical Union. And they are the authorities. They have the creds. They have the, abil the ability to speak into these things. And so now poor old Pluto has been reduced to the status of a dwarf planet. So there you have it. Well, what are you going to say? The IAU has spoken. What are you going to say? Moving from the cosmos back to the creator of the cosmos. Lest we wonder, lest we doubt whether or not Jesus actually has the authority to speak on the matter of the ultimate end of everything, on the direction of where the future, and I'm not just talking about your timeline and my timeline and the United States' timeline or Western society's timeline. We're talking about the timeline. Lest we wonder whether or not he has the authority to speak on such matters, he makes it quite clear that, in fact, he does. And we need to let that sink in for a moment. The shock value of that, the wonder of that, that he has the authority to speak on these things, and we need to hear and heed what he is saying on these things. Not just, not just in the sense of, hearing and heeding his assurances and promises to us, vital as that is, but also he, hearing and heeding his foretellings and warnings to us as well. Because, again, Jesus is being very clear, very clear. He couldn't be more clear on his return, and he wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be ready. Well, that then takes us to the second point. So will this happen? Will this happen? Okay. When will it happen? You see, if you, if you actually, you know, right, right? If, you under, if you actually believe this is going to happen, well, the next question might be, if you're a thinking soul, when? Well, Jesus speaks to that as, as well. So verses 24, excuse me, chapter 24, verses 36 to 41. We're moving now from the certainty of these events to the uncertainty of the timing. So picking up in verse 36, but concerning that hour 
And that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken one left. The certainty of the timing. His appearing will be sudden. It will take absolutely everyone by surprise. His appearing will be sudden, and it will take every, everyone by surprise. His appearing will be un, uh, completely unexpected. That's the point hearkening back to the days of Noah. That's the point as to why Jesus is doing that. That's why he then mentions the, the laborers, the workers in the farm or at, at the mill. It's, it's going to be completely unexpected. Everything that day, whenever it is, is going to be unlike any, excuse me, is going to be just like every other day. Everything's going to, just going to be, seem to be going completely normal as it has been every day before until that moment when one will be taken and another left behind. And just as a very quick aside here, let me just say this. This speaks directly against a lot of popular and deeply mistaken teaching out there about these matters. It's very obvious when you read this in context that actually it would be really good to be left behind. It'd be really good to be numbered among those left behind, just as in Noah's day. That's the point of the imagery here regarding the, the, the farmers and the laborers and, and such. It's just, I feel like I've got to just say that. Sudden appearing, unexpected, completely unexpected. It will be an utter surprise to everyone, especially because, and this is another point in here, of the hiddenness of the schedule the hidden nature of the schedule. We don't know. And we won't know. It's not for us to know. And so we shouldn't try to know. You hear that? You see what Jesus is saying? He couldn't be more clear on this point. We don't know. We can't know. We shouldn't try to know. You know who else doesn't know? He doesn't know. That's what he says. He says, the Son of Man himself doesn't know, but the Father does. The Son doesn't, but the Father does. Now, that, that is, let's just park on that for a moment. Think of the wonder of what we're, we're speaking of here, what Jesus is speaking of here. We're talking about Jesus is fully God. The mystery here now of, of his person is fully God and fully man. So given that we know that he is fully God, and I'm not going to pretend to understand this, so don't you try. Just, just a scent to the facts, okay? Jesus as God is omni-everything. He is um, omnipresent, he is omnipotent, and he is omniscient, and yet at the same time, he is suppressing these powers that he possesses at nearly every point 
of his earthly ministry. Such that we have this stunning statement here in Matthew 24 where Jesus is acknowledging his ignorance. In any other case, probably should be brought up on heresy charges for saying such a thing, but that's what Jesus is doing here. He is professing his own ignorance on the topic of the timing of his return. I don't know. Do you hear the humiliation in that? This, 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 this fits completely with the pattern of the, the humiliation of the incarnation, that the Son of God is, if you will, not forced into, but taking himself and putting himself into the position of saying, I don't know. In, in a sense, I don't know for your sakes. I don't know for your sakes. Such is his love, such is his mercy, it's the humility of our Savior. So it is, it, equally forcefully, we can speak to the certainty of his return. We have to equally forcefully speak to the uncertainty of the timetable, the suddenness of his appearing, the hidden nature of the schedule, and then from that we then learn, oh my goodness, the humility of our Savior. Not just the authority of his words. That's worth just you know putting roots in and staying there a long, long time, but equally so the humility of our Savior. Tim Russert, some of you may remember Tim Russert. He served for years with NBC News as the Washington bureau chief and as the uh, longstanding moderator on Meet the Press. He was also an altar boy in the Catholic Church uh, growing up, and that becomes rather important here in this quote I'm about to read to you uh, from his biography. Russert once had a private audience with the Pope, and he's recounting uh, some of that conversation. I'm going to read that to you. I'll never forget it. I was there to convince His Holiness it was in his interest to appear on the Today Show. I'm trying to, I just, just take, take a step back. You're trying to convince the Pope to appear, okay, never mind. Um, but my thoughts soon turned away from NBC's ratings towards the idea of salvation. As I stood there with the Vicar of Christ, I simply blurted out, bless me, Father. He put his arm around my shoulders and whispered, you are the one called Timothy, the one from NBC? I said, yes, yes, that's true. They tell me you're a very important man. Taken aback, I said, your holiness, there are only two of us in this room, and I am most certainly a distant second. He looked at me and said, right. Now, lest anyone be confused, I am not quoting that to try and muddle the waters as to the Pope's status in the overall economy and kingdom of God. Uh, he is no different than any other mortal human being in this room, okay? So don't be confused on that point. The point is simply this. It's good to know your place. That's the point. It's really, really good to know your place. We are told time and time again in the New Testament that among many other things, so this is not everything, but among many other things, Jesus serves as our model, as our example, 
We are called as his followers to follow him, to follow in his footsteps, to be his disciple. There's a tradition through the centuries of the church that refers back to the imitation of Christ, which is a really good, wise thing, rightly understood and taken. And so with that, we are called to serve as he served, to love as he loved, to be prepared to suffer as he suffered. And here, it's clear we're also being implored, commanded, to trust in the Father's plan, just as he did as well, and to submit ourselves to that, to trust in the goodness and the wisdom of our Heavenly Father and his workings and dealings with us in the grand scheme, of course, you know, the future plan, but also your future plan, or better yet, his future plan for you. And to submit ourselves and to humble ourselves to know our place in that. Jesus is making very clear the reality of his return, and he wants us to be prepared. Well, that then takes us to the third point. We're wrestling here, so, so okay, we have the certainty of these events, got it. We got the uncertainty of the timetable, and that then takes us to the necessity of being prepared. Or if you want to take it in terms of questions, you can do it this way. Is this, in fact, going to happen? When will it happen? And how can I be ready? It's the third point. Uh, it's, and in answering that question, Jesus tells two stories, two parables. We're going to look at these in turn. The first of these stories is uh, that of a master and, of all things, a thief. A master and a thief, verses 42 through 44. Therefore, so, you know, in view of everything else that I've said, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You can't predict when the thief is coming. That's the point. And just so, there's no way, truly, we can predict when the Son of Man is coming. That's the point. So the application of that is be awake. Be alert. Don't fall asleep. Stay on your guard. That, that's the application. The implication is very clear. You just can't get arrested. what Jesus wants us to hear and understand. Okay, well, that takes us, that's the first parable of the master and the thief. It takes us to the second story, the second parable, and that is of two servants and their master. Two servants and their master. So we pick up now in verses 45 and read on through verse 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So... I have these two, these two stories, these two parables, 
And the second one, its theme, is very similar to the first one, but there is a slight difference in the nuances as well. So whereas the first one is speaking to the, the, just the facts that we can't predict when he's coming, the second story, while similar, is, is, is meant to press into us the danger, alert us to the danger of presumption. The danger of presumption. This, as Jesus describes him, the wicked servant has this notion in his mind that because the timetable of my master's return is not operating according to mine, so therefore he's been delayed, and therefore I can do as I please. And Jesus is pointing out the danger of going there, the danger of presuming in what we regard or what we think of as a delay in his coming. Rather, rather, be ready as the as he says, the faithful and wise servant is there in verse 45, the faithful and wise servant. Be prepared, be ready, be prepared. What, after all, does the master expect when he returns, right? I mean, obviously not, not doing as the wicked servant does, obviously not that, but also equally so not, not just sitting there like the, the dog, the family dog, at the door, just, just looking out the window, just waiting, waiting. No, no, no. What the master expects is for the servants to be busy about the work that he put them on when he left. And that's what he expects to find when he returns. Them being busy about the work that he put them to do. And that's what it means to be a faithful and wise servant. So we're learning here with these two stories, while different, slightly different, but certainly similar in the nuances, the absolute necessity of being prepared. The absolute necessity of being prepared, knowing that the Son of Man is coming again. Let's think in terms of when a hurricane is making landfall. So the Weather Channel, the National Weather Service, whoever it is, they've got their models running. NASA's got the satellite feeds, or they're, doing, they're making their predictions, and this is what weather people do when this sort of thing is going on, out in the Gulf or out in the Atlantic, whatever it is. Uh, they begin to make predictions regarding when's it going to be, when's it going to be, when's it going to be. And that's fine if you're a weather person because that's your deal, that's your shtick. But if you're living on the shoreline, your attention should be on, some, on a different question than when's it going to be. It should be, am I ready? Am I ready? Am I prepared? Think back to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and what happened there. You remember that? Not that long ago. There's a life lesson in here for a, a larger point. For decades, for decades, people knew and were saying, this city is not ready for a direct hit by a major storm because so much of that area is beneath sea level. So they knew, the city knew, the residents of the city of the city knew, and the storm came, and what happened? They weren't ready. They weren't prepared. Thousands died. Hundreds of thousands lost their homes. And a city was bereft of its population. Why? Because they weren't ready. There was so little thought to being prepared. It won't happen. It won't happen. It won't happen. And then it did. And then it did. So here's the question. Are we ready? 
That's the question Jesus is pressing on. It's, it's the only question that can come at this point. Not when, but are we ready? Are we prepared for the coming of the Son of Man? And what would that mean? That, that's the follow-up question, right? Because if you care about the first question, you ought to be asking the second question. Like, am I ready? And then the follow-up being, whoa, 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 what does that mean to be ready? Because we're not talking about boarding up windows now. What does it mean to be ready? It's said that Martin Luther was asked this question. If you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do today? Now, it depends on what source you get, you know, when you look this up, and you can do a Google search on it if you want. Uh, but this is what you'll find. Luther said something along these lines. I'd work in my garden. Work, work in your garden? I mean, that sounds like just unplugged, disinterested, like, like, just, that's like a non sequitur. Jesus is coming tomorrow, and so today you're going to work in, in your garden. Here's the point of what Luther's after there in, in his response. Being ready, being prepared for the return of Jesus does not demand the spectacular. It does not demand the dramatic. It demands faithfulness in the ordinary. And let me just say this. If you are so, uh, what do I want to say? Um, convinced that you're being called to something spectacular and dramatic right now, I have a question for you. Are you being faithful in the ordinary? I'm not saying you're not being called to that. I'm not, not ruling that out. But you have to begin with this. Are you being faithful in the ordinary? Are you trusting in the everyday? Are you being content with where he has you in this moment, in your calling, at this station, in your life today? That's what it means. That's a lot of what it means to be prepared, to be ready for the sure coming of the Son of Man that could be tomorrow. That could be tomorrow. It may mean we would all do well today to work our garden. To work the garden. Jesus could not be clear on the, his coming, on his return, and he wants us to be ready. Let me come back to where we began with this need-to-know basis idea. And how so much of what he's saying and divulges and does not, and the balance of all that is on a need-to-know basis. Just be We need to be assured of this. We are not being left in the dark, as if we're being cheated of something that we have a right to know and need to know. It's not it at all. It's not it at all. It is so much more a mercy than we know that he only tells us what he tells us. It is so much more a mercy than we realize that he tells us enough. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. So Corey Ten Boom, I don't know if that name is familiar to, to you, the author of The Hiding Place, a wonderful, beautiful story and some other books that she wrote as well. Uh, Tramp for the Lord was, I believe, the, the sequel uh, and some other things as well. 
she and her family were involved in the, in the um, harboring of Jews uh, in Europe there in World War II, keeping them safe from the Nazis, and then in turn, they themselves were caught and sent off to prison camps as well. Well, Corey, in her book, uh, The Hiding Place, uh, recounts an event er much earlier in her life as a little girl when she was returning home on the train with her father, coming back from a, a trip where they, they, her father was a watchmaker and watch repairer, and so they were, they'd gone off on the train together. They're coming back with all the parts and such for him to continue with this watchmaking, watchkeeping, um, repairing uh, business. Well, in the course of this journey on the train, Corey, as a young girl, had overheard a conversation that probably would have been good for her not to overhear. And that conversation generated a question that she gives, puts to her father, and it is, how are babies conceived? So you get what kind of thing she's probably heard, right? And this is what her father responds to the, his, his young daughter. So he, takes, he stands up and he takes out the suitcase with all the watch stuff. And he says, will you carry it off the train, Corey, he said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Now, you can run a mile with that. I'm just going in this one direction, on this one path. Like a wise father, God knows what is too heavy for us to carry. Jesus, particular context here, is not being unkind and deceptive, holding back things we need to know. He's been clear giving us what we truly need to know, what is truly enough, and he's carrying the rest. He's carrying the rest. And so with all of that in mind, ours is but to then rejoice, to rejoice and to be attentive to what he has said and get to work in the garden. He's been clear, and he wants us to be ready. Let's pray. Lord, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? That was the, the question of your disciples, and we thank you that you were so patient with them. They didn't even really get what they were asking, and you knew that. You're so patient, so merciful, and yet so clear, giving them all that they needed, giving us all that we needed. Oh, we ask that you would help us to focus in on what we have, because that's plenty. That's plenty enough for us to be a people whose lives are typified by justice and mercy and faithfulness in these days. To be a people whose lives are marked, to be a people who are known by our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends and family, whose absolute priority over everything else is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We have enough. We know enough to run down those lanes. We ask you to help us to live in light, to live in light of what you've done for us and to live in light of what's coming. 
We thank you for this time. We pray in your name. Amen.